0: Less likely than it was. Otherwise, the Justice Department, normal prosecutor the regular rank Smith, and file the special there, were prosecutor well into this investigation. Ultimately,
1: they had the power
2: to crime make a decision. Prosecutor, now, this means, they're going to
0: bring in some outside witnesses. We'll have some more independence than a typical prosecutor from the Attorney General. So I don't think it makes. A, an indictment any more or less likely the special counsel doesn't mm. necessarily have any special powers that an ordinary it's federal prosecutor would have but the idea here is to create to, to mitigate any potential conflict of interest and i think jeremy's reporting that if it appears the biden administration the president himself the white house did not know this was coming. I think that's a really uh-huh. important point because DOJ Why not? and I, you should be operating independent of politics, independent of the White House, and so Merrick it appears Garland DOJ said, and Merrick Garland have made this decision to appoint a special counsel
2: Garland own. said that if Trump, if and when Trump declares his candidacy that he was going to appoint a special prosecutor, he said that like a week ago, I, I heard that. How come Trump's lawyers didn't know that? Without
0: consulting with the White House, without consulting with the president, and if the whole point here is let's get rid of any appearance of a conflict of interest, then that's mm. a...
1: Sm- so what they're saying, guys, is very clear. The reason the Trump t- team is dreading this, the Trump and the Trump lawyers, and the Trump family are dreading this is because, again, it's a ramping up. You don't do this unless you're nearing the end. It's sort of like how a few weeks ago, when they brought on that special investigator, the guy who had investigated, among other things, terrorists and things like that. And a lot of people thought, well, why are they still bringing people on? Shouldn't they be really gunning to the finish line? And what a lot of folks said at that time was you bring on big hitters at big moments to make big plays. And that really is the epitome here. And again, you might personally disagree, but Donald Trump and his team are freaking out. Again, he did like a, a recorded phone call where they recorded his words. They transcribed them in writing. So it's a written recording of this phone call Trump did with Fox News Digital. And he said that he's, he's you know, this is an injustice and I'm not going to participate. And you can hear the like the, the anguish in, in, in the writing. Like Good. this guy is scared right now. Can he's yes. freaking out at Mar-a-Lago because this special counsel means the thing isn't over. It's just beginning. Electrify your metabolism oh. back to teenage Shit. levels by you eating one half teaspoon of this with water and burning fat like you're still in
3: high
0: school.
2: Finally, for fuck's sake, adult- what are the fucking indictments? Okay, let's see what the comments say. People are divided on what this means, and that's fine. But Trump and his team are dreading this it is a good sign. Treason isn't protected speech, it's criminal action. Trump should be held accountable for his actions. Tonight, I say to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible, there will come a time when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonorable will, will remain. Trump is a jackknife on the freeway at rush hour. What a Trumpster fire. Thing that bothers me most is everyone still calling him president. He is not the president, he's the former president. He has lost that title as far as I'm concerned. This entire ordeal is taking its time, and I pray this will finally happen. I agree with you, Christo. Comma, this is a very good sign! Exclamation points, Merrick. Garland actually said about a week ago that if and when Trump declares candidacy, comma, he would appoint a special prosecutor, comma, so it should not be a surprise for Trump lawyers, period. Keep in mind... Everyone, comma, and this is great news, exclamation point. Keep in mind that this guy, Jack Smith, is a rock star of the prosecution world, comma. He was involved in putting Milosevic behind bars, comma, that war criminal, exclamation point, he is described as a prosecutor's prosecutor, comma, and this dude is a heavy hitter, comma, and I I am much more confident now that Trump is going to go to fucking prison, finally! Exclamation point. Hooray! And this helps in keeping the appearance of being impartial for Garland to appoint somebody else to Handle the investigation Period What does that fucking have to do with Melania? News that ruins her life Mm. DHS FBI had testified before Senate following report on on what?
3: More than 20 years ago September eleventh terrorist attacks
2: domestic changed our extremists. nation forever.
3: In response, Congress created the Department of Homeland Security and our entire national security apparatus focused on keeping Americans safe from international terrorism. However, in more than two decades following those attacks, the threats to our communities have evolved and have become increasingly complex. While we must continue to monitor international terror threats, there's no question that we must be better prepared to defend against our top, national, what our top national security officials, including those before us here today, have called the most lethal terrorist threat to Americans, domestic terrorism fueled by white nationalist and anti-government ideologies. Supporters. Yesterday, I released a report detailing the results of my investigation. And alarmingly, my investigation found that DHS and the FBI are not adequately addressing the evolving domestic terrorism threat. Despite a requirement in law written by myself and Senator Johnson, DHS and FBI have failed to effectively measure and share comprehensive data on the threat posed by violent domestic extremists and specifically white supremacists and anti-government violence. Hey,
2: got some Without this comprehensive
3: out. data, it's impossible for Congress and for this committee to determine whether our nation's counterterrorism resources are effectively aligned to tackle the domestic terrorism threat. We need a data-driven approach to prevent deadly incidents like the January 6th Capitol breach, the tragic shooting in Buffalo, and countless other domestic terrorist attacks that have been fueled by hateful extremist ideologies. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses today about what resources and tools their agencies need to effectively collect data on domestic terrorism and to prevent these crimes. Today, we'll also have the opportunity to discuss the significant threat that cyber attacks pose to our national and our economic security. I'm proud of bipartisan work. Senator Portman and I have led this Congress to enact some of the most significant reforms in our nation's cybersecurity policy in history. Our reforms will ensure that DHS has the tools, the resources, and the authorities needed to protect critical infrastructure, state and local governments, and other targets from cyber attacks. However, there is more that must be done to continue securing our vulnerabilities from criminal hackers and foreign adversaries, and I look forward to discussing these topics today. One of the most serious threats and one of the toughest to tackle is the threat posed by increasingly severe national or natural natural disasters and climate change. This is an existential threat to our planet, and unless it is addressed, it will have a significant impact on our homeland what security.
2: Fuck is he talking about? Today,
3: we'll hear more about how our national security agencies
2: are, are about tracking these challenges, and and how, how they're planning what the to does that address have to do with the
3: security it? threats they present now and into the future. We also have a challenging situation at our southern border and today we'll discuss the administration's work to secure both our northern and southern borders and prevent illegal trafficking and stop the flow of deadly illicit drugs like fentanyl into our communities. Those are difficult missions that must be accomplished, ensuring that
2: that lawful
3: international trade and travel can continue to flow smoothly at our ports of entry and keep states like my home state of Michigan a hub for international commerce. As our national security agents continue to tackle these long-standing threats, they must also be prepared to counter emerging ones. Over the last few years, the threat posed by unmanned aerial systems or drones has become increasingly perilous. Small drones, which can be purchased off the shelf at any electronics store, can be weaponized by malicious actors to damage our nation's critical infrastructure or inflict mass casualties. Today's drones could be used to launch remote attacks on everything from government buildings to crowds at public events, including large sports stadiums. We cannot let the current authorities that help address this grave threat expire in December, and I'll continue working to ensure those important authorities are extended and that they are updated. Similarly, weaponized biological, chemical, nuclear, and radioactive materials also remain a significant threat to our homeland security. I have introduced bipartisan legislation with Senator Portman to reauthorize and strengthen the office of DHS charged with overseeing these threats and will continue working with my colleagues to pass it as soon as possible. The scope and the volume of these and many other national security threats requires Congress and this administration to work together to ensure that we're doing everything we can to keep Americans safe. Today, I'm pleased to welcome back each of our witnesses to hear more about how their agencies are working to effectively carry out this daunting and essential mission. And I look forward to a productive uh, discussion. But before I I turn things over, uh, I want to just take a moment uh, to recognize uh, my colleague, uh, Senator Portman, who is uh, retiring this year. Rob, I tell you, it has been an absolute uh, pleasure uh, to uh, work with you over the past uh, two years uh, in this this committee. Uh, I'm grateful for uh, all of your hard work uh, and your diligence uh, to help us pass such uh, meaningful bipartisan legislation uh, through this committee from providing important financial relief to the U.S. Postal Service, to strengthen our ability to detect and deter cyber attacks, and working to make our nation uh, more secure and more effective uh, for uh, taxpayers. It's uh, certainly been a, a real pleasure, and I wish you uh, godspeed in uh, all your future endeavors, but uh, all the work you did here will certainly never, never be forgotten. Mr. Chairman, would, but I, would, I would you yield also... to me
0: for just a minute? One, one, five seconds, five
4: I, I... seconds. I just want to say I'm Tom Carper. I approve that message. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and I would also like to thank Staff Director uh, Tom uh, Teeson or uh, Pam. Hi, Pam. Did I say Tom? <laughs> you're Pam. I know that. I know you so well. <laughs> Pam, Pam. Uh, uh You you have uh you just have an uh, exceptional team. There may be a Tom somewhere in the
2: team too. I don't Bunch know, of right. fucking idiots. Pam,
3: you've been uh, exceptional. You have put together. Uh, an incredible team. Uh, we've worked together, accomplished a lot uh, together. Just always fucking open. and all so we'll have to do it. Many times, again. maybe not agreeing fully, but always finding a way to try to find uh, common ground. Uh, we wish you Godspeed as well in, in your future. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for that. With that, ranking member Apartment, Portman, you're recognized for your opening remarks. Well, thank you, Mr. It's Chairman. And, and um, just to respond comments to those uh, comments, off, but go fuck yourself. the relationship we've had we This committee has done a lot on a bipartisan basis. Um, some of it doesn't get
2: hey pbs news hour come why do you turn off comments question mark very undemocratic of you exclamation point. What does fentanyl and immigration have to do with uh, white supremacist terrorists? Question mark, very suspicious. I oh, don't know, Shiza, okay, I'm not going to fucking watch this shit, it's pissing me off, stupid, waste of our tax dollars.
1: Try this 90 second trick Mm -hmm. to instantly reduce your winter energy bills by 85%. Hey,
5: everybody, it's Troy. Hey, listen, a bombshell piece of reporting coming out in the
2: New York York Times
5: that identifies potentially Justice Alito as the source of the leak. Around the Hobby Lobby decision in 2014, that decision leaked to a group of evangelical anti-abortion activists before the ruling came out. The Hobby Lobby decision uh, made it possible for family-owned businesses who objected to providing birth control for their employees and made it possible for them to deny birth control, uh, really just a, a thorn in the side of Obama's Healthcare legislation, the Affordable Care Act, which was trying to mandate that employers provide birth control. Uh, the New York Times has received a letter that was sent from uh Reverend Robert Schneck uh to Chief Justice John Roberts. Now Robert Schneck was used to be a big time anti-abortion evangelical activist, big time in the uh, anti-abortion community, he had a anti-abortion nonprofit. Where he uh, used uh, donors to mingle with Supreme Court justices, we know that we now know the Supreme Court justices uh, were mingling with anti-abortion activists, with evangelicals. Evangelicals were getting unprecedented access to the conservative members of the court over the past decade or so. This is one of those cases. Reverend Schneck revealing in this letter to Chief Justice Roberts that one of his top donors uh, to his nonprofit, Gail Wright was dining at the home of Justice Samuel Alito and his wife. Again, part of this ridiculous access that these people got to Supreme Court Justices. Gail Wright then revealed to Reverend Schneck that she had some uh, very interesting news about the Hobby Lobby case that would be favorable to Hobby Lobby. Apparently, a day after the dinner with uh, Samuel Alito and his wife, Gail Wright contacted Reverend Schneck by email saying, Rob, if you want some interesting news, please call, no emails. Setting up a contact with Reverend Schneck over the phone where there would be no paper trail over email, whereby she she then informed him of their conversation with the Alitos, in which apparently Samuel Alito revealed the outcome of the Hobby Lobby case. Again, this is in 2014. Schneck then preps his network of, anti, of anti-abortion donors and, and the groups that he's involved with to prepare for a positive decision, in their mind, a positive decision on the Hobby Lobby case. In other words, that the Supreme Court was going to rule in favor of Hobby Lobby, uh, enabling that company to not provide its employees with, with contraception as part of their health insurance plan uh, because of religious objections. And then at the last minute, apparently Schneck reported that at the last minute, a few days before the ruling came out, he informed the CEO of Hobby Lobby himself, that the ruling would come down in their favor. Uh, The CEO of Hobby Lobby was apparently very pleased on this phone call and then they didn't didn't speak after that. Uh, But this is incredibly revealing. It reveals that Justice Alito may have been giving out uh, the outcome of Supreme Court cases to these right-wing evangelical donors before they came out. Uh, So one can only assume now that alito is most likely the source of the leak of the dobbs decision which was published which was published by politico uh, months before that decision came out we all remember the the uproar that that caused and the anger really on the right about who the potential leaker could be they were claiming it may have been a liberal uh, staff member or clerk uh somebody you know somebody angry about the decision um we've always kind of suspected that it may have been one of the conservative judges themselves Uh, prepping their evangelical allies for this news. And now with this bombshell reporting from the New York Times that Alito had revealed the results of the Hobby Lobby decision in 2014, it's more than likely now that we have the identity of the leaker, and it would be Justice Samuel Alito for the Dobbs decision. Reverend Schneck has sort of renounced his old evangelical right-wing anti-abortion ways and become something of a whistleblower. He's identified a network of evangelical, what he called stealth evangelicals who were trying to get access to Supreme Court justices really um, really influenced their decision on some of these more evangelical cases. But this is just revealing a, a web of corruption among the conservatives on the court and adding to an already uh, incredibly negative public perception of the court. This court is corrupt beyond words, at least you know, these, these conservative members, particularly Alito and, and Clarence Thomas, uh, they These people are destroying uh, the image of the institution, the public perception of the institution, which is really all that the Supreme Court has in terms of its power. Justice John Roberts talks about that all the time. The only thing the Supreme Court has is the perception by the public that it is an honorable institution above the fray, above politics. That's how the Supreme Court operates. They have no enforcement ability. Their only ability to uh, get their their decisions enforced is by public perception that their decisions have been honorably made and above politics. What this Schneck letter is now revealing is that Justice Alito uh, has no honor. He has no concept um, of neutrality, of being an impartial jurist, of being an impartial judge, that he very definitely was on the side of some of these uh, right-wing evangelical donors that were mingling with the Supreme Court justices, that he had built a network of friendships with them. They had unprecedented access to him to the point where they were dining. This couple was dining alone in their house with Alito and his wife, and he was giving them information about uh, incredibly top-secret information about about the ruling, about the, the Hobby Lobby ruling. And let's be clear, these rulings do not leak. At least we thought they didn't. We always thought that the Supreme Court was a fortress of solitude, where no information got out about how the justices were were ruling about their deliberations. Apparently, Alito was giving uh, insider information to some of these evangelicals. Knowing now that Alito was most likely the source of the Hobby Lobby leak in 2014, we can only reasonably conclude that he was also the source of the leak of the so- of the Dobbs decision earlier th- earlier this year that was covered by Politico months leading up to the actual um, report of the decision in June. Uh, this is, if, if true, this is just undeniably uh, a bombshell report, uh, just incredibly damaging news against Samuel Alito. This man should not be on the Supreme Court. There needs to be an investigation of, of other potential other decisions that were leaked by Alito and potentially Thomas to their network, to their right-wing evangelical network. Uh, this could cause permanent damage to the reputation of the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court justices now are no longer above the fray. We're knowing now that they are very political in nature. Uh, they are not shy about anymore about hiding the fact that they do have that they do hold political beliefs and they are biased, uh, and they are making their rulings based on their evangelical faith rather than on the law. This disqualifies them from service in the Supreme Court. And if these accusations are proven true, these people need to be removed from the Supreme Court. They cannot be serving on this court. We cannot have the rights of millions of Americans lie in the hands of corrupt judges uh, with political uh, agendas that are being influenced by people with political agendas. Just absolutely shocking. More to come on this from Midas Touch. This is Troy. Remember, smash that subscribe button to keep supporting independent media. At Midas
0: Touch, we are unapologetically pro-democracy and we demand justice and accountability. That's why we're spreading our message to Convict45. Yeah. That's right. Gear up right now with your Convict45 <laughs> T's and Pins
5: at store.midustouch.com. That's
0: store.midustouch.com.
2: Right. For just $67. So let's see what other garbage stuff is going on. Senator, Sh- Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, dark money, the Supreme Court... And Sounds good Commonwealth Club
6: And welcome to today's virtual commonwealth club program i'm melissa kane i'm a political analyst and attorney and i'm your moderator today it's my pleasure to be here with the author of the scheme how the right wing used dark money to capture the supreme court our guest has been representing rhode island in the u.s senate since 2007 and he's a senior member of the senate judiciary committee today we'll be discussing his new book and taking questions from viewers as a reminder we encourage you all to submit your questions in that text chat on youtube and now let's turn it over and say hello to senator sheldon whitehouse
4: thanks melissa wonderful to be with everybody and i'm grateful for the invitation from the commonwealth club
6: we are so happy to have you here to ask questions but first let's just start with a broad question Your book is called The Scheme. So give us a summary. What is the scheme you describe in your book? So
4: I think the um, ideas that people need to have in mind for the rest of our discussion are some pretty simple ones. The first is that this is really not a conservative court, not by any standards of judicial conservatism. It's really more a captured court. So you have to have uh, conceptually the notion of regulatory capture or agency capture, which is a long phenomenon in US history, a very, very unfortunate one. But you can imagine you know, 19th century railroad commissions that were captured and run by the railroad barons. So that's kind of the model. It's had a long, long um, unfortunate history, as I said, all the way up to, if you remember, the Minerals Management Service that allowed the uh, BP uh, oil spill explosion to uh, happen in the Gulf after a lot of very, very bad regulatory effort. And then the other is that how this was done bears a lot of resemblance to what you and I would probably ordinarily think of as a covert operation. And if you think of the intelligence efforts of intelligence agencies –
2: scheming to use my word in other countries a lot of the stuff that
4: intelligence agencies do to accomplish their goals in other countries is exactly the kind of stuff that was done uh, to effect the capture of the supreme court so if you have in mind a
2: covert operation in this case run in and against our own country by
4: special interests and a captured agency um, then i think the pieces begin to fall into place pretty quickly
6: well, and so you, the way you structure the book, now you're you an attorney, a um, former U.S. attorney, I believe, and uh, the way you structure yep. the book is, uh, is sort of by making a legal argument and you sort of lay the chapters out uh, as a, like, as sort of a lawyer making a legal argument. You have a chapter on motive and means and co-conspirators. Uh, why make the decision to, to lay the book out that way?
4: Because um, the problem, as the title suggests, is dark money. Dark money is the means through which this scheme was effected. And the very definition of dark money is that it's anonymous. You don't know who's doing the spending. They hide themselves. That's what makes the covert operation covert. So
2: you have to deduce a lot of this. And that takes you into the realm of
4: circumstantial evidence, which is very good evidence. And a lot of very evil people are spending time in prison because of
2: circumstantial evidence proving uh, the crime that they convicted, uh, but they it takes a little bit
4: of of uh, doing to set it up that way, because there's it's not like a news
2: story where you find somebody who can tell you something that blows the scheme
4: wide open. You've got to actually assemble all the evidence the way a prosecutor would. So that seemed to me to be the best model for for structuring the book.
6: And was there a particular moment or a piece of information that really set you on the path to trying to put these uh, these pieces together? Tell us what inspired you to, to finally say, hey, I think this is what's happening, and I want yeah. to tell people about that.
4: Well, in my um, jobs before I uh, came to the Senate, um, as you say, I was a lawyer. Um, but I also did a fair amount of appellate work. I've argued a case in the U.S. Supreme Court. I've argued cases in two of the circuit courts of appeal. I've argued frequently before the state Supreme Court here. And for a lot of reasons, those appellate cases fit into a you know busy schedule and worked for me. So doing the appellate work was my sort of uh, litigative bread and butter. So when the court began to behave in very weird ways it was apparent to me fairly quickly because i had been exposed a lot to what proper appellate practice looks like and when they veered off those rails it was easy for me to notice and i began to express concerns about this in the in the senate um but my colleagues hadn't really gotten there yet and uh, there were some rather difficult moments when i was basically told to shut up and sit down, because you are you talking about? The Supreme Court depends on credibility. We can't possibly criticize it. So I thought, okay, I've got to figure this out I, and, and put some evidence before my colleagues. So I wrote an article that was vetted by a lot of people and went through what you might call red teaming and was put out there for public scrutiny and nobody has critiqued it. But when I did that, what I found was that the record was actually worse than I was afraid of and that nobody had put the case together yet. And one article, you know, lost in some group's journal is one thing, uh, but I figured more needed to be said than that. So I tried to take that and expand it into what became this book.
6: Well, I have to say, one of the things as a reader that really stuck out was the Powell Memo. Uh, it's something you write about sort of early on in the book and as something that's sort of an important roadmap for, for this scheme, I would, I would say, um, not sure that you would, but you know, it seems like a pretty good outline. Um, can you talk about that memo and how you came to discover it and what impact it has had on the trajectory of, of things that came after? Well, there's been kind of, you know, progressive legend about the Powell Mm -hmm. memo And as I became more concerned about the Supreme Court, I went and actually found it, dug it out.
4: Um, And it's a memo that was written by uh, an attorney named Lewis Powell um, for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to respond to their concerns about the loss of corporate power and the rise of, what in the 60s, was called liberalism and we now would call progressivism and how that was interfering with their business models, how that was interfering with their ability to sell themselves, how they were being, you know, ridiculed and um, condemned for, you know, the products that they made and the lack of safety and the pollution and all that. So they hired somebody to put a strategic plan for corporate America together to push back and reclaim power in the country And what was interesting is that this lawyer, Lewis Powell from Richmond, Virginia, turned his memo into the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and about four months later got sworn in to the United States Supreme Court as Mr. Justice Powell. Weirdly, nobody turned over this important memo that he'd written to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to the Senate in his confirmation process. So it was kind of a a secret that slowly emerged uh, over time. But it laid out several strategies for reclaiming corporate power, what they thought was a loss of corporate power. And one of the strategies was to look at courts and to understand that courts were a powerful force for shaping the uh, culture and the economics of our country and to go about it deliberately. And so the seed at that point was planted that a court wasn't just an arbitrary thing out there that just dispensed justice it was an institution that had an effect on how the country ran and if you could control that institution you could make enormous progress and then of course that developed over time as they tried to do things that people hated politically and for obvious reasons they failed at doing those things that people hated politically so the idea kept coming back oh my god if we could do this in the court nobody has to you know they're bomb proof. Uh, they don't have to run for reelection. They can do what we want. So the focus then shifted. But I, and I don't think that the Powell memo was the beginning of the scheme necessarily, but it certainly laid out for the
5: first time to interested corporate
4: powers the notion that capturing a court was a potential means of exerting power against the will of the people in our country.
6: Well, I do want d- to, to dig into that just a bit because. Um to some degree the 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 scheme itself um it relies on this idea uh, as you write in the book uh the court doesn't answer to voters but i mean mm-hmm. it kind of does right i mean voters like people like you to go to dc to make laws that then the courts have to um abide by or interpret um appropriately and so when you look at things like and that's not you know constitutional amendments are harder to do but certain pieces of legislation like the federal arbitration act um could be amended i know you've tried (laughs) you've been trying to amend it so that their their rulings would actually be more constrained so i mean there is some check on the on the court's power even though it's It is difficult to do, um, and it feels more difficult to do these days.
4: Yeah. And where you have, I mean, the obvious premise of the book is that the
5: capture of the court and the direction of it that has resulted from its capture are aligned with big Republican donors. So the fact that there's an alignment
4: with the Republican Party should be no surprise. So if you really want to do this, you get the court to do what you want, and then you use your Republican... uh, forces in Congress to prevent exactly the type of changes or corrections or repairs that you're talking about. And of course, if they're starting from a position of deciding what the Constitution says, and that they're making constitutional laws rather than interpreting a statute, and some of the worst decisions they've made have been hooked into constitutional provisions so that it's much, much harder uh, to undo them. You know how difficult it is to amend the U.S. Constitution. We do it very, very rarely, and it's a real ordeal. Uh, And it takes a long, long time. So they have many, many years for their decisions to play out, even if you could amend the Constitution to repair it.
6: And one of the things, I mean, you do talk about um, in the book is this, you know, couple of early victories on dark money, and that that really paves the way for other various anti-regulatory challenges. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about how that sort of, sort of starts a machine that, um, that then, you know, allows to your point, um, or prevents, uh, various amendments that might otherwise be made, you sort of very smartly or, you know, however you want (laughs) to, maybe whatever word you want to use there, uh, started with, let's open it up to, um, to unaccountable money. Yeah.
4: Well, it actually begins a little bit further back than that when uh, the court, or at least the Republican members of the court, first opened up the American political system to corporate participation. And that was the job of none other than Lewis Powell. And his first decision was uh, called Ballotti versus Bank of Massachusetts, and it let the Bank of Massachusetts uh, spend money in a referendum election in the state of Massachusetts. And created the proposition that they had business in a state election, a referendum election, which if you go back to the Constitution, if you go back to the constitutional debates in Philadelphia, if you go back to the Federalist Papers, nobody talked about a role for corporations. I mean, the whole idea is preposterous. And that was the first foothold of corporate power. And then, you know, on went the uh, decisions gradually building on that until we finally got to uh, the real problem child, which is the Citizens United decision, which let unlimited amounts of money into politics. And that was the great bellwether. And not only just in in any election, not just a state election, not just a referendum election, but across the entire political frontier of the country, unlimited money could be spent. And of course, the people who are going to be spending unlimited money are basically Either corporations themselves or the forces of corporate wealth, so it was a wide open gate for corporate power into our democracy.
6: Well, you yeah, So I live in San Francisco. I'm in San Francisco right now. We certainly are in a place where we have um, large tech companies that um, that aren't necessarily. Um, or at least don't appear to necessarily be on the right. I mean, can we, can we necessarily assume that all corporate money is going to right wing or this sort of federalist society, um, engineered, um, line yeah. of cases and line of, you know, line of changes that they'd like to see in the law? Uh, you know, isn't there some room for, for companies to, to give money and be part of left-leaning or you know, sort of anti-anti-conservative um, causes.
5: Yeah,
4: we'll have to see about that. You know, this is all new. The Citizens United decision was decided in January of 2010, and the interests that went immediately into action based on that decision were primarily right-wing interests, anti-regulatory interests interests who had a lot of engagement with government because they were heavily regulated, polluting interests in particular. So the Koch brothers and their big operation, the whole fossil fuel industry, I think they were the ones that really started this off. And over time, other groups and other donors have piled in so that the actual spending on both sides has become uh, more balanced. But the thrust of it still has this very heavy um, regulated industry component to it and so it to me it still has that uh lean or that bias and if you think of it as a way to actually make money as opposed to just a way to express yourself so look at the fossil fuel industry they've got a 600 billion
2: dollar annual subsidy in the u.s from being able to pollute for free says the
4: international monetary fund right it's not greenies it's the international monetary fund so if you're protecting $600 billion, you can spend an enormous amount of money to do that. And somebody who's coming in just to be a good citizen, somebody who's coming in for, you know, Ilya or charitable purposes, isn't going to sustain the kind of effort that you will sustain if you're basically paying yourself 600 times your investment every year. So that's where the, I think the bias is not just one of past experience, but also um, one that can be projected into the future. And certainly that's been the direction of the court under the influence of the uh, dark money funders that got them there.
6: Now, is this an antitrust argument? I mean, it, it could because it will always make more sense. I mean, if you're, if you're a company that is so big, that you have hundreds of billions of dollars at stake in a, yeah. you know, based on a regulatory um, issue, uh, whether it's through the courts or the legislature or whatever, I mean, it's always going to make sense to spend 1 billion, you know, <laughs> who's counting, uh, to, to influence that. I mean, is, is there an yeah. issue with, with, with some of these companies just being too big so that that equation is always going to make sense somehow?
4: Yeah. Well, there's, I guess two things there. One, it's always going to be an issue, particularly now that we've got, you know, multi-hundred billion dollar corporations. Um, The amount that they can spend to influence politics successfully compared to what they have at their disposal and wherewithal is a tiny little fraction. So it's very, very easy and a big invitation for them to get involved in politics and try to manipulate our politics when you have these huge aggregations of um, corporate wealth. Um, and I'm sorry, I forgot the other part of your.
6: I was just question. saying, is there is there an antitrust issue here? Oh, yeah, is there use. something yeah, yeah, yeah. that needs to be done to make to no, make it so that this clause. equation, yeah, you know, stops making sense for a of people? No, because of, of the
4: way. because of the petition clause of the Constitution, it's always been a limitation on antitrust law that when companies get together to ask the government for what they want, then
5: that's not an antitrust problem. So
4: when the fossil fuel industry gets together to plan and scheme on what they're going to ask Congress when they're doing their political planning, that is separate from combining and conspiring to raise prices, even because it's being done through the political system. And the petition clause has been read to protect that from antitrust scrutiny for a long, long time,
6: so um, they've got an antitrust restriction-free highway to spend that immense amount of money. Ah, oh, wow! Um, one of the and things- to, do it,
4: to do it together, to combine and conspire and plot and plan and scheme uh, together as long as they're trying to get uh, government act in the way that they wish through the channels of of the Petition Clause.
6: Uh, well it does seem like you know it it's always going to find a way. Uh, it's it's a little it's not a not a feel good <laughs> presentation here. No. But <laughs> no but
4: what you what you want if is as long as the money's going to find a way people should see it. And that's where the dark money problem comes in. Even in Citizens United the Supreme Court actually said anonymous political funding is corrupting. And that's why the, yeah it's kind of a duh moment, but they said it. And then that's why they had to make this finding in Citizens United that all of this unlimited spending they set loose was going to be transparent, that people would know that at the end of the ad, it would say, you know, we're ExxonMobil and we brought you this message. And of course, that didn't happen. And it's been over a decade now. And the court has failed to clean it up. And the result has been that citizens like you and I are disabled from knowing. What's going on around us? Because the ad that comes up on our television screen at the end of the day, after smearing people and lying and saying all the horrible stuff that is now our uh, conversation in politics, will then say, this ad was brought to you by, you know, Citizens for Peace and Puppies and Prosperity, which is a nothing phony front group that just hides the identity of who the real spender is. So citizens now are denied the ability to know what player is in what jersey, and understand the political contest that is going on around them? And that's probably the worst thing about dark money: is that it disables citizens and makes them helpless and unknowing consumers of poisonous messaging.
6: Well, yeah. So I was recently in Las Vegas, and uh, and we don't get so many political ads here in San Francisco with Nancy Pelosi on the ballot. Once again, we uh, we have very few, uh, you know, sort of. Large scale political fights here. But in Nevada, it was so strange because every ad was a political ad.
4: Yeah.
6: Right. Yep. And every political ad was not candidate endorsed, right? If it's from yep. the candidate's campaign, at the end, they say, I. They have to say
1: it.
6: Yeah, exactly. I endorse yeah. this message. But there was like maybe one of those. All yep. the other ads were from.
4: Puppies and place. Puppies and Prosperity. Yeah. These <laughs> right? In
6: tiny, tiny writing
4: at the bottom of the screen yeah you know even if you could you
6: know pause it and figure it out
4: (laughs) and when that happens you can smear to your heart's content because you will never be held accountable for whatever horrible things you're saying you could lie you could smear you can be as awful as you please because there's no accountability because the speaker is this anonymous phony organization that can be disposed of like toilet paper when the election is over
6: and and you pointed out something, it was so weird, I saw on YouTube, somebody sent me a link to a YouTube video a few years ago, uh, Mitch McConnell was running for re-election, and there was this video of him, just happened to be there on YouTube, where he's sitting at his desk, and he's like shuffling some paper, and he's smiling at the camera, and it's very weird, you don't understand, for, initially I didn't understand, what is this? for why is he smiling at the camera and just doing random stuff in his office uh and then you know as you point out in the book you realize this is for third parties to use to put in their ads i mean they're not cooperating you know with a capital c but i mean they're putting these strange little youtube videos out there so they're for b-roll essentially for um for for these ads to to do as well, which is something that I think our viewers all can um, can relate yeah, to. that was the
4: that was the second big premise of false premise of Citizens United. One premise was, oh, well, don't worry because all this spending is going to be transparent. You'll know who it is. Ah, that didn't work out. The second was, this is all going to be independent of campaigns. This is just going to be companies standing up and stating their position, uh, you know, in the public sphere. And of course, that's not the case either. Candidates and their dark money um, groups are virtually indistinguishable. In fact, you have super PACs stood up just for a particular candidate in a particular race. So the idea that those things are going to be independent is ludicrous. But it's telling that the Supreme Court has never gone
2: back and cleaned up those false factual premises, despite the fact that time... Has proven them indisputably
4: false, and that's kind of how we get to the role of the Supreme Court in all of this mess.
6: Well, you have actually tried um, I, for many years now, I believe, to um, to to clean it up. To the yeah. disclose Act, I believe, is is one of your projects, yeah. uh, and that you've introduced every year, and uh, and yet it hasn't been enacted. Have you considered? Um, you know, suspending the filibuster, or, you know, is it worth that to get the votes and get this passed?
0: I think so. I think it's
4: deeply corrosive to democracy. Even the Supreme Court that gave us Citizens United and set loose unlimited spending still thought that anonymous unlimited spending was corrupting. So it should be no surprise when we have lots of anonymous political spending. By the way, we just hit a billion dollars. In anonymous political spending for republican senate candidates uh, in this cycle a billion dollars so it's out there they know it it's on the front page it's obvious and when they, they won't fix it it's pretty telling to me that they refuse to fix it and it suggests to me that they had an ulterior motive when they wrote that decision and they weren't sincere about enforcing that transparency premise uh, at the end of the day because they've had plenty of opportunities um John McCain was pretty legendary as an expert in campaign finance stuff, and he and I wrote a brief to them early on saying, hey guys, you blew it. This funding is neither independent nor transparent. We see it. We're in the middle of this. You've got to go back and fix this. And it's one thing to blow off the junior senator of Rhode Island, but it's another thing to blow off also John McCain, who was a you know very serious guy, presidential candidate, legendary campaign finance champion, very knowledgeable, and made our brief bipartisan so they couldn't shrug it off. It's just, you know, something from the left, but not enough. Um, But I do think that to get the Disclose Act, it is worth, to get this corruption out of our system, it is worth, and I would describe it as not getting rid of the filibuster. I'd describe it as going back to the filibuster so that we actually have a system where the minority in the Senate gets to slow things down gets to say their piece, gets to filibuster away for some period of time, but at the end of the day, we get a vote. And at the end of the day, that vote is majority rule. And if it takes two weeks or three weeks or two months to go through that process, if it's important enough, you can still do it. And to me, that's important from a Democratic point of view, and it's really important from defending against corruption.
6: And my understanding is Democrats have pretty much across the board uh voted in favor of the disclosed act uh and having said that i mean there are some pretty big progressive dark dark money groups i guess you would say the the atlantic wrote an article about it says democrats have quietly pulled ahead of republicans in untraceable political spending Um, what do you what do you make of that and should they be using that money to try to undo some of this
4: once you let bazookas on the battlefield, everybody needs a bazooka. Otherwise, you're just going to get rolled. So it, we were slow, and it took us years to catch up. And the Republicans had uncontested dominance in this space for a very long time. But now we've caught up. But that doesn't change the fundamental problem that this stuff is corrupting. And it's poisonous. And we have it has no business in our system. And we've got to get it out. And my bill would get it it out on both sides. Republicans can't do it. Democrats can't do it. It doesn't matter who you are. When you spend more than 10 grand in an election, the voters should know who the heck you are. So um, that's really where the focus needs to be. Who's trying to get rid of this poisonous stuff in our system Mm -hmm. and who is trying to protect it? And at the moment, that's another sign of how the bias is still in place. If it weren't biased in favor of Republicans, they wouldn't be taking a very hard vote because the public hates this stuff, so it's not an easy vote, they wouldn't be taking a very hard vote to defend uh, dark money.
6: Well, in insofar as they've used the dark money to then entrench people who will defend dark money, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. would you encourage, or have you encouraged your, um, you know, other progressives and Democrats to use this money, to use these resources to to fight for more disclosure, to fight in favor of candidates who would support the Disclose Act and, and sort of count, to try to counter some of that instead of just saying, hey, I've, I've got a bazooka too.
4: Yeah. Yes, I'm a um, constant voice for that. In part, this is a whole long separate saga, so I won't go
6: down the road, but um, I don't know. This is the that. internet. You can, you got some time.
4: <laughs> Pe- people, people hate this stuff. Mm. And left or right, it doesn't matter. A Bernie bro and a Tea Partier hate anonymous, enormous spending in politics just as much as the other does. I mean, the American public hates this stuff. And when you ask them about it, their reactions are really violent. I mean, they're appalled. They, they want to be rid of it. So I think we should be much, much more aggressive as a party taking on this publicly as an issue about corruption and about why the economy isn't serving you, and about why you don't get your voice heard in Washington. So, yeah, I believe very strongly that we'd be in a far stronger place as a party if we had made taking this form of corruption out of our system a priority.
6: Is it is it a problem that we see some, and this is what some people... I feel like this is a phrase that's overused, but so forgive me, um, you know, cancel culture, that, that yep. there are such real world ramifications for people who have lost their jobs or been, you know, uh, kicked out of school or, you know, there's there's sort of examples of people who have really been um, been hurt by saying something by their speech. And so the the idea being that, you know, we do need an avenue where we can, contribute and be anonymous because otherwise, you know, sort of the world is a dangerous place for people who express certain views. What do you say to people who are concerned about that? Uh,
4: money is different. Mm. Everybody's free to express their views and they can put a face up on the internet, hell, we've got Russians working through fake personalities on Twitter and Facebook arguing in our politics so it's not as if there's not plenty of room for hidden voices to come in and express themselves it's different when you're writing a million dollar check to get a candidate elected because money is the so-called mother's milk of politics and money is a different thing because of the linkage to corruption um and again you know even the citizens united justices admitted that linkage to corruption, and of course we see it now. We actually see it happening in plain view because we see these academic studies that say Congress doesn't respond to what people want any longer. Statistically, there's it's it's a null hypothesis. They do not respond to that. They respond to what the people with the money want. And so that's the difference. This is not about silencing anybody or canceling anybody. This is about people who want to spend millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars to quietly get their way with politicians who will sell out their vote for the money. And if that's being done in the dark, if that's being done anonymously, if that's being done behind closed doors, covertly, in clandestine fashion, then it's really bad because the public isn't in on the information they need to connect the dots.